2: Welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and in this episode we're talking about stick-ups and standoffs with later life crime caper The Old Man and the Gun, surreal call centre unionisation comedy Sorry to Bother You. Joining me for this one we've got Ella Kemp. Hello. And podcast regular Stephen Ryder. Hello. Who pointed out to me last week that despite being on the show for quite a long time we had somehow never crossed over on yeah, the same it was episode
3: honestly a really exciting moment for me <laughs> and nothing to you Jake. Yeah. so it was very you know it's very yeah. upsetting but,
2: but i've made up for it by doing two weeks two in, in a row, row now yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i'm bored now what a pleasure <laughs> all right um well Stephen, as, as a treat for not being in my presence we did set you up with an interview with david lowry the director of the old man and the gun and um, so that was a bit of a treat
3: yeah, I mean, he's uh it's he's such an easy interview. He's so um amicable and so willing to talk about his films um which I think kind of comes through in his films as well. Is that they? That, I mean, this has been described in the press a lot as a very warm film, and he comes across as a very warm man, um, really knowledgeable about uh, film history, and um, and and obviously, uh, as we talk about in the interview, he's he's got such a kind of eclectic filmography at this point in his career, um, and uh, I think that really shines through. He talks he talks a little bit about being, you know, unable to stay on in one kind of lane for a while he likes to move about uh, and you can really tell that yeah he's a really knowledgeable guy yeah
2: Ella have you been um, privy to seeing other of the lanes of Lowry's career up to this point
4: yes absolutely so I really enjoyed a ghost story which was his most recent film. And a very different kind of film, I think, but I was really taken with that. And then ahead of The Old Man and the Gun, I did a little bit of homework and went over his version of Pete's Dragon, which I hadn't heard great things about, but I thought it was really lovely.
3: Absolute masterpiece, So good. <laughs> I'm glad we all agree here. I think the most similar, very obviously it's an animation, but it's yeah. the most similar, I think, in his career to Old Man and the Gun, mm. just because of the fact that it's such a sweet film um, mm. and it's got a lot of heart to it um so it's, it's great that i think he can do that and then I, I was like you with the ghost story i thought it was it was my favorite film of uh last year um and i, I think that from to move from that to this is the sign of a filmmaker who are you know i think audiences should really keep their eye on as his career progresses okay and what's this one about so Old Man in the gun uh is about a uh a bank robber. Um, you know, we've had a lot of films about bank robbers. Yeah, we recently had Elleron
2: for Widows. Um, I feel like this year's been the year of the heist. Like, yeah. It's been
3: everywhere. American Animals, too, I suppose, yeah. too. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, this uh, is is... It's hard to describe it as a heist film, though, because... He has a very specific way of uh, going into banks and basically uh, getting money from people, um, and it, I almost hesitate to call it uh, stealing because they seem to hand <laughs> it over with <laughs> with uh, you know ease. Um, but, but Forrest Tucker is obviously played by Robert Redford, who is um, you know a, a legend in Hollywood, and uh, the story basically follows him uh, and his bank robbing career. Um, But it's less about the heists, I think, as a lot of heist films are. They do have a secondary kind of component to them. And it's about um, a man's career or a person's career and how that changes as they get older and how they maintain a kind of life um, through their old age. Um, And obviously, um, it's got an amazing synchronicity with Robert Redford's career as well, um, as he's kind of nearing the end of his career. Uh, Right now, we're at a point where we're not sure if he is retired or not. But either way, this film is certainly about retirement, getting old and kind of um, staying true to how you feel rather than how you're perceived to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously in this film, he, he meets uh, a, a, a woman, Sissy, played by Sissy Spacek, who's, um, uh, who he kind of really falls for, uh, but doesn't explicit, he doesn't explicitly know that he's a bank robber. Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, you've got Casey Affleck's character who is uh, trying to track him down uh, with a, a, a begrudging respect.
2: Well, let's hear a bit more about it from the director himself, David Lowery.
3: Thank you, David Lowry, for joining us. Oh, my um, pleasure. On the Curzon podcast. So I wanted to start off by just talking about what a kind of lovely idiosyncratic career you've had so far. Um, you've been through heavy drama, you've been through animation, um, kind of an art house uh, fantasy horror film, and now you're kind of doing this romantic um, heist kind of comedy. Do you think where do you think you get this ability and kind of inclination to jump between such varied projects from?
0: I have a really short attention span, that's that's part of it. I like so many different types of movies as a moviegoer and I don't want to limit myself as a filmmaker to like one genre or one brand of filmmaking. And so when these opportunities have arisen or these ideas have struck, I just jump at them. And if I'm excited about it, it almost doesn't matter like what the size or scale or tone is, it's just, it feels like the right story to tell at the right time. And even the stories aren't that important to me. It's like for something, there's always something ineffable about these movies that makes me want to dig into them. And they do represent my taste as a moviegoer. I go see so many different types of films and I love so many different types of movies. And I, I want to participate in that multiplicity of, of, you know, of cinema. And so, for lack of a better word or lack of a better way to describe it, I just am ravenous for different types of cinematic experiences and making different types of movies is a great way to uh, satiate, that hunger now I completely understand that, that, was, a very, uh, that was a very I was using a lot of like food related <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> obviously food have not had, I obviously have not had breakfast yet
3: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I think it definitely shows in the old man and the gun as well because it's it's got this amazing kind of um, duplicity to it in the sense that it it feels like a throwback uh, to all these kind of um, 70s crime dramas or 80s crime dramas, but at the same time, it has this real sense of originality to it. Were there any specific films that you had in mind when you were writing and directing uh, The Old Man and the Gun?
0: Definitely. I mean, there were certainly heist movies that I was thinking about, and I was there were certainly Robert Redford movies, like definitely Downhill Racer, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, any movie where he played an outlaw in spirit or in practice was on my mind but then there were other things like the fantastic mr fox the wes anderson movie oh, really? like i thought about that a lot i really wanted this movie to feel like a live action version of that
3: it's a film about growing old as well though isn't
0: it yeah it really can is yeah see the parallels there yeah. it definitely uh you know that was a big influence and um another one that i've talked about a lot recently was robocop it, just in terms of it being a very Dallas movie, you know, this is a movie that's set in Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm from and where I still live and no movie captures Dallas better than Robocop. And, uh, so that was on my mind a lot too, just in terms of like the look of it, the feel of it.
3: That's quite incredible. Yeah. A couple of films there that I really wouldn't have expected you to say, actually. But I mean, in the sense that the film is about um, kind of growing old and the passing of time, it does actually link a lot back to your previous film, A Ghost Story, as well, which I was really happy to see that connection between the two films because they are incredibly different in style. Um, But hearing, um, I think, uh, Sissy Spacek at one point says to Robert Redford, something about 10-year-old him would have seen kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, the world and time very differently to how he does now. And I'm not sure if she's right when she says that. Do you know what I mean? Because he's he sees time and uh, age completely differently to the rest of the characters in the film. He does. And
0: I like that they both represent two points of view there that I think are both right. You know, like, he wants the approval of the younger version of himself. And that's something that I see in myself all the time. Like, I am always thinking back to the seven-year-old version of me who decided that he wanted to make movies and thinking, okay, would he be happy with where I am now? Can we, can we have the answer to that in a minute? Maybe sure. (laughs) The flip side of that is like, well, the seven-year-old version of me has no idea what life has in store for him and he should not hold the current version of me accountable because he has no idea what is coming. And I think both perspectives are true and I wanted, both of these characters in the film to espouse both of those perspectives. And they're both representative of various thought process th- processes that go on in my head all the time.
3: And yeah, that's incredible, yeah. So so I was going to ask as you were writing the film whether you kind of sided with one aspect or another, but it seems as though you really wanted to kind of give the whole spectrum of what it feels like to grow
0: old. It is, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's something I think about a lot. I don't like to think about growing old, but it's an, an inevitable part of being a human being. And so it's better to... To dig into the the, you know, the philosophy of it, and to and to think about it, and to and to engage with it, and and to do it with grace is a is a beautiful thing.
3: Yeah, well, you must have quite a few people telling you that you're uh, a young director. You must hear that a lot. In, in these the days, that, like
0: lately, in the past couple of weeks, it's been happening a yeah, lot.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's because um, you know you are a young director. You've had all these kind of amazing projects that you've worked on that have done so well. Um, but then you, I think, the, your decision to make a film where you have to then work with two legends of Hollywood in in Redford and Spacek. Was it quite daunting for you to suddenly give them a script and give them direction about what it feels like to grow old when you're, you know, a young director and they're kind of these legendary, you know, with
0: the exception of the scene we just talked about, there's not really any discussion of aging in the movie. It's there in the text of the film because of who these actors are and the age that they are. But, I was like, let's not talk about like the aches and pains or the arthritis or, you know, just how difficult it is to get out in the bed in the morning. Let's not focus on those things. Let's let you let's let the youthful side of who these actors are come through because they they do have that. That's not they're not just actors in their 70s and 80s. Now they're human beings who have who are multifaceted and their age is going to be there no matter what we don't have to talk about it. Let's yeah. let them be young on. Screen. Yeah.
3: And it works so well because of that. I think you get the moment where I completely noticed that was, um, the, the kiss yes. when he walks back to the house, the moment where he takes his hat off and kisses, her just blew me away with how sincere and kind of young he looked all it of a sudden sort of blew both. us away on set. Yeah. It wasn't
0: just on the lens. Sometimes yeah. you see things on through a camera and you're like, that wasn't how it was in real life. But in that moment, in real life the decades just melted from his face yeah and he became this young man in his 20s again and we were like how did that just happen <laughs> what did we just see it was an extraordinary that's moment. incredible almost cgi like it, 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 it was it yeah, was it was like it was like a benjamin button when it <laughs> walks out and you know it's a special effect yeah your breath is still taken yeah, away yeah yeah it yeah. was like that in real life
3: yeah, It was an amazing scene and um So I wanted to ask um, the uh, seeing Robert Redford back on film, not uh, on cinema, on a cinema screen, but on film. Yes, uh, was an amazing experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how uh, difficult or how easy it was to convince the studio to let you shoot on film because it was shot on film. Right. It was We shot super 16. It wasn't hard at all because It it was
0: always that was just from the from day one. Yeah, that was the decision. Yeah. I just told our financiers and then later on Fox searchlight when they became involved that this was going to be a movie that we were going to shoot on super 16. And I was just so firm about that from such an early point in the process that we never had to debate it. You know, there was the question of, you know, do you want to shoot on 35? Because we can, we could afford it. But super 16 felt like the right format for this movie. It felt important to me that the actual format of the film be baked into the aesthetic of it. And when you look at 35 millimeter now, sometimes you might forget that it's shooting on, you're sh- shooting on film. It's a very clean you know, film stock. And we talk about and things
3: like Dunkirk. You know, yeah, you it's
0: it it's yeah. Very crystal clear. Yeah. It's beautiful. On a subconscious level, I think mm-hmm. you're aware that it's film, but you don't see the grain. Mm-hmm. With Super 16, there's never going to be a point where you're not aware that it's shot on film. And I wanted that to be part of the process of enjoying this film. Yeah, well, there's that
3: moment, uh, I mean, it's really early on. It's when the title card comes up, and the title card and the name of the film is shaking. Yeah, it's got on the little screen. jitter to it's it. It's jittering yeah. on the screen. And something just as simple as that can really transport you back to, like, a, a, a 70s film. A or very an analog film. era. Yeah. yeah, and it works so well. And did you? how much focus did you put on kind of transporting the audience back to that era of filmmaking?
0: We didn't think about it too much other than, you know, early on deciding, okay, here's the language that we are using to tell this story. Obviously you've got the sets and the costumes and they're going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. But we also, my cinematographer and I decided that we weren't going to take a nostalgic paintbrush to the image. Obviously there's a lot of nostalgia to it already. Again, like the actors that's baked in. And so we didn't try to emulate you know the the look and feel like a Vilma Sigmund for a film for example Mm -hmm. we didn't try to make it feel like it was this this 1970s um veneer that we were going to brush over everything we were just like let's just shoot it on super 16 and not be too finessed about it let's not get too finicky with the image let's let it be rough around the edges and in doing so I think we actually captured the feel of those movies back then that didn't have that much money or that much time to to be shot in and it it is because we were just not sweating the details we weren't trying too hard to make it feel that way that it wound up feeling that way
3: and that's a, yeah it worked out really well i think um and obviously something that also adds to the kind of um the tone and the the time of the film is the uh the amazing soundtrack actually uh daniel hart yeah um, who did the soundtrack it's kind of a would you describe it as smooth jazz
0: yeah it's got a smooth jazz quality yeah, to it that was definitely too. like what he brought to the table like he was like what if we what if we had a jazz score I'm not a student of jazz. He is, but I'm not. And so it was a new territory for me, and I was excited to break outside the mold. It would have been very easy for us to do something folksy like we've done before, and it would have fit the movie like a glove. But I really wanted to, with everything in this movie, I wanted to push myself outside of my own comfort zone. And having a jazz score was a great way to do that. It really fit the movie, though. It really... it really. Sounded the way the movie looked, and when, the, when when he started sending us tracks, I just felt like thank God he had that jolt of inspiration because it was it was exactly what the movie needed.
3: It's got that um, ability to kind of um, take you along with it. Um, it can come in and out of the soundtrack at any point and never yep. feels invasive yeah, and exactly. i think that's what's so special about exactly. it you, you you do notice it but not in a way where it's oh i'm noticing the music it's now. illuminating the movie
0: rather yeah. than commenting upon yeah, it yeah
3: no absolutely for sure and obviously you use um, an incredible song that i really love and i was really happy to see it come up uh, blues run the game Jackson it's one of my C favorite Frank. songs yeah so great and But what I found really interesting about your use of the song was that you decided to use it in a chase sequence, in a a car sequence. And uh, can I ask you a little bit? I have a few, uh, you know, kind of ideas about why you might have done that, but I'd love to hear why why you did.
0: Oh, it's a tough question to answer because that's been there in every draft of the script going back, you know, that's five years ago when I first started writing it. I knew I wanted that song to be in the movie. And it was always in a chase sequence. It always felt like, you know... we're going to have this car chase at some point in the movie and it was going to have an elegiac feel to it. Especially, you know, when you have most of the movie scored with this jazz, this this sort of like jaunty jazz score to have it all of a sudden break down into this contemplative folksy ballad during a high speed chase. Mm. It really casts that entire sequence in a different light and allows the film to become contemplative in a way that it hasn't previously you know up until that point it's a pretty it's a pretty upbeat movie and all of a sudden you're watching you realize I think what I liked about that song was that you just feel the weight of the world on Jackson C Frank in his voice and in that sequence in the movie the weight of the world is crashing down on Forrest Tucker's shoulders and something about the timber of Frank's voice. Evokes where Forrest Tucker needed to be at that point in the story.
3: Yeah, absolutely and I, I just think it was it, it fit so well in the kind of just tone of the film in the sense that it didn't um, It didn't just flip the kind of film into an action sequence. It didn't punctuate. Yeah, it, you know um, and I really enjoyed that. I really th- I felt like instead of being taken out of the film and having to watch an action scene and kind of Being blasted by it. It did give me time to contemplate the characters completely it's not something you get very often in an action
0: scene so No I And, and I, I mean, I love shooting action scenes, but I'm not interested in them functioning the way action scenes normally are going to function I really want them to be character moments. And There's something about car chases. I mean, I think we learned that in Mad Max you can have a lot of character development Absolutely. come through in a car chase yeah. and and uh, and this one was all about the character.
3: That's really great to hear. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the Old Man in the Gun is fantastic. And I really uh, think it might be a sleeper hit this summer. In oh, UK, I hope it so. is. I'm really excited. Um, for it and obviously out. with uh, you've been attached to Peter Pan next. Um, That's
0: definitely in the works. Another, another film about aging. It is, is. It is. a trilogy almost. It's, 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 it's something I can't get away from because it's such an <laughs> omnipresent worry of my own. I, I don't know if that's my next movie. I think I might make another smaller one before cool. that, but it's definitely coming up soon. That's great
3: to hear. Thank you very much, David. Thank
0: Larry. you. Can't wait to talk to you again.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host all
2: right so thank you david lowry for that fantastic interview um i think the place to start for this one is although this the character might be called forrest tucker uh, as much as it's about him it's about robert redford as well Um, And I I absolutely love him in this role. I love him anyway. I mean, who doesn't? But this just seems perfect. And he's perfect in it,
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the way that I first saw this film described was as Robert Redford's swan song. So I thought, brilliant. This is going to be the culmination of everything he's ever done. And also, I must admit that I wasn't the most familiar with his career. So it really felt like a brilliant place to start in a way, because... Even with the little that I knew, it still felt like it was such a perfect fit to have this criminal that, well, a lot of people clearly know, because this story stemmed from uh, the interview that Forrest Tucker did in The New Yorker. So this was like a big real life thing. And then Robert Redford took on the role. And it just seemed kind of mad that these two big personalities, both gentlemen, both incredibly charming, found each other. And that Robert Redford... He is Forrest Tucker, however, you know, cheesy and that sounds, it's kind of like destiny.
2: Yeah, and I mean during the eighties when this film was set, that's famously when Robert Redford had some downtime and only made four films. So I mean who's to say? <laughs> no
4: one ever saw them in the same room, I don't know.
3: <laughs> no, he's he, he, he plays it with such ease. Um you can tell that it's an actor coming towards the end of his career whether this is his swan song or not. I'm not sure but um, he, he plays it with uh, I, I, I was, as I was saying to David Lowry, it, it almost feels cheating um, to direct somebody like this because he's clearly uh, so in control of his character and so uh, you know in front of the camera he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and you're right like it is almost um, it's incredible how these two lanes have kind of converged and I think that um, if this is his last film, I think it's the perfect Mm -hmm. last film. Um, But I I mean, what's so amazing about um, his performance is the the fact that he is playing, he is old, he's playing old, but there's still that twinkle. He's still got that twinkle in his eye um, that he's had throughout his whole career which you know i am I'm, I'm not as familiar with robert redford's career as i think other people are now that old man and the gun is out and they've kind of looked back at it um but you you do get in this film some scenes from his old films uh, which i think is a really really clever move yeah um, and
2: like there is there is actually there was another film that came out recently called king of thieves mm-hmm. uh, which does the exact same trick yeah and in there it just felt a bit gimmicky and mm-hmm. cheap because you didn't feel like the legacy, even though you had characters like people like Michael Caine who have had obviously big careers that have dabbled in crime capers and things like that. There's just something so perfect about Redford himself and the fact that he is the focus of the film, that you can get away with doing something like that and it doesn't feel cheap. It feels so open and loving towards him and towards those characters that you can't help but fall for it.
4: I think sometimes I find a problem when I'm watching a film and... I know it's a very famous actor, and then after the film's finished, I find myself referring to the actor's name rather than the character. Sometimes I really hate that because it makes me think, well, was the character too flimsy? Was the actor being quite indulgent? But I don't think that's the case at all in in this instance. I love that these two characters and people, Forrest Sucker and Robert Redford, have mu- have as much of an image and importance at each other mm. as opposed to one kind of dominating and just kind of erasing the other one
3: yeah it's a lesson in perfect casting really it is and I think that, that one of the reasons that the the, the the scenes from the old films fit in so well is also mm. the choice to shoot on film mm. which I think uh, immediately kind of reminds us all of Robert Redford's legacy because you know a lot of his classic films were, were shot on film and they have that kind of grainy texture to them and as soon as this film opens you get that kind of feeling of falling back into the past and um, a, a nostalgia that doesn't feel cheap for once, that feels very much earned. And I think that um, the grainy texture of the film um, means that when we do f- kind of flashback to these moments in Robert Redford's career, it doesn't seem jarring at all. It yeah. seems very much in tune with the world of this film, the kind of the hermetic world of this film, in that it's all taking place in this kind of imagined past almost. Yeah,
2: and what I like about the use of film in this one is that it feels needed i think there is such a cine bro culture of like celluloid fetishization that means that oftentimes particularly online and maybe shorter form like vimeo type stuff people just want to say that they've used film even if it might not be the right thing to do like because film costs more these days like digital is a much cheaper way of making your film Mm -hmm. um But here it feels right, as you say. It feels ingrained with the themes and the story that I'm very happy to accept it being shot like that. Yeah,
0: me
3: too. And and I think that the the idea of... Um, going back to this idea of like warmth and the cinema. I know Sam, one of our kind of hosts of the podcast, said that he turned around at the London Film Festival and looked at the crowd and everyone was just smiling. Uh, And I think a lot of that is to do with the film and how kind of breezy and pleasurable it is, but also the, the texture of the screen. Like it's so easy to just sink into this film because you don't feel like there's that kind of window in front of you. It feels like you can just reach straight through it into this world. And I think that's a really amazing thing for a director to accomplish um in an age where like you said film is becoming fetishized and kind of a anomaly in cinema rather than you know a a gimmick yeah um this is not this is not a gimmick it's it's very much in tune with the film Speaking of easy, let's talk about Daniel Hart's jazz
2: score. Mm. Um I mean not to endorse, I mean other streaming services are available, but Spotify just released their um kind of wrapped for the year where it tells you everything that you've listened to. Despite this soundtrack only being out for a month, <laughs> <laughs> it's my number one. Oh my god. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's so good. I love Daniel Hart. Um he did amazing work on uh, Pete's Dragon. Uh, A Ghost Story was the top of my rap last year. and But his, like, one of his, I would say his opus is the music for the podcast S-Town. Which oh, is, did he do that? Yeah.
4: Oh, very cool.
3: Which that is, makes so much yeah. sense.
2: And that is my go-to for gotta get down at business work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, in, in this, he's doing brilliant work and there is some, I feel, some tonal crossover with S-Town. It's almost, mm. it like talks with a southern drawl. It's, it's so nice. Um, I think, yeah, he is going to be massive. Uh, some of the work he's putting out is fantastic, but this is just lovely.
4: Isn't I it? find it really interesting how you mention about the getting down to work music mm. because I found that a lot with this score as well because I really like those, the, the soundtracks that you can... Listen to within the film and really recognise individual moments that make something feel brighter and more enjoyable and really just stand out moments. But then once the film is finished, to listen to that whole score, like 15 songs in a row and just be able to get on with whatever work you're doing and just kind of have that extra energy and warmth to it. It's a real skill mm. to make someone want to just commit to you for that many songs.
3: I think Lowry is really pleased with how the soundtrack turned out, and I think it's such a large component of this film yeah. uh, working. Um, uh, I, I did want to mention the the moment on the soundtrack with the car chase. Um, we spoke about it in the interview, but I wonder what you guys how you guys felt about when we have because there's not a lot of action scenes in this film. Uh, the, even, the way he robs banks is. Uh, equal to the way that this film does action scenes and that he walks in politely asks for money and walks away and whilst that not sound, it might not sound like the most exciting thing in the world but when you're watching it it is and a lot of that is down to the soundtrack but then when we do get a big action scene of the car chase instead of you know daniel hart or david lowry choosing to put like a kind of bombastic kind of action soundtrack on it he puts a one of the most kind of melancholic Easygoing folk songs. Mm. Um, I just wondered if you guys kind of had some ideas about why you would do that because it's brilliant. <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, so. Blues
2: run the game. Yeah, blues which run the game. Is a really beautiful song. Um, but there's a circularity to the lyrics in that song that it is about just coming back to something that will always be there in your life, and that is this strange notion that the film gets to towards the end is that it's not in that slick vein of other heist characters like a Danny Ocean where it's so cool and you can't resist it. um, There's almost an addictive quality to that when it settles on that near the end. And I really admired it for that. And I think that melancholy is in this song because Tucker can recognise when there are things that are good. That maybe might help him get away from this, like Sissy SpaceX Jewel, who is obviously got a perfect character name. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can't resist it, and mm-hmm. even though, he f- like, even though he knows it's bad for him, and I think that's what's in that song.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I just, it's funny that you mentioned like in being being a kind of knowing what's good when he stops off at the start of the film to help her with her car, um, and you know you get these kind of very intimate close-ups of these two actors it made me realize that forrest Tucker is somebody who can be swayed by things like romance and maybe has built his whole career on this idea of the romantic criminal mm. um I've, if you do have you i don't know if you both read the new yorker article mm-hmm. um but i read it through he talks uh a lot about um kind of like when he was young he was a he was a little stinker he was doing some you know he was doing some bad things, but uh he kind of did ha- always have this idea of like what a criminal was and this kind of bonnie and clyde thing he enjoyed running away and he enjoyed being caught and he enjoyed escaping but then he sees someone like jewel and you know he knows that that's another option in his life that he could take, but he can't can't quite seem to move away from the romantic criminal.
4: but that's the important thing about him and this film i think is that i don't think it would work if he was just a criminal, just running heist, just having fun because of the heist. There is that vulnerability and that real emotion in it which comes through in the song in that really beautiful melancholic moment and I think that's what makes the film have so much more weight and film so much more important because there's that balance that recognises that he is he is a human who has feelings as well and that's what I think makes it different to all the heist movies and my favourite line in the film is is when Jewel asks him kind of what, you know, why he does what he does and how he makes a living and all of that. And he just replies, I'm not talking about making a living, I'm talking about living. And it's yeah. a line that's, it could be considered quite cliched and very easy, but because it is delivered the way it is delivered by Robert Redford and it aligns with Forrest Tucker's career and life that has a lot of genuine... You know, emotion, like you said in the article, everything just makes sense. And oh, God, my heart's singing a bit now yeah. just talking about I think it. We
2: might have to wrap up there. But before we do, quick shout outs for the supporting cast Danny Glover, Tom Waits, Sissy Spacek. And Casey Affleck. Uh, there's a moment where Casey Affleck and Robert Redford characters meet in a toilet corridor. <laughs> scene of the year. Uh, Sensational. Smile work. on my face during that scene. Yeah. Amazing. Um, we must move on very quickly to Sorry to bother you though. In his anarchic debut feature, Boots Riley sets fire to the modern world and blasts off to brilliantly original territory. An absurdist film that savages capitalism, low-paid labour, and racism in a cutting, surprising trip that's left American audiences baffled, boyed and bruised in equal equal parts Uh, so I think this played first at Sundance uh, and so this has been a bit of a journey uh, particularly online there was a bit of a kind of rise up for people to bring it to the UK and it's finally happened.
4: Absolutely yes Uh, so we are now in December this film Mm. has been doing the rounds since January but it's not been doing the rounds close enough to us there has been this very vocal and very loud outpour the internet Everyone saying when is it coming to the uk and well i mean when is it coming anywhere past sundance because it did have such a loud response because it's boots riley's debut but it it has a lot of very big themes a lot of very big names and you know it was a film that everyone was talking about and wanted to talk about and Mm. it's finally here
2: yeah it is a weird one um you got lakeith stanfield tessa thompson uh army hammer Stephen Yun, danny danny glover again big wave <laughs> for danny glover
3: fans um which is like that's a mega cast. it sells itself this film i, I mean obviously we, we aren't kind of privy to what's been going on behind the scenes yeah. in the industry and that's not kind of what we talk about on the podcast <laughs> but um obviously you know somebody couldn't agree on something and the film and its release might have suffered from that but that being said i think a cast like that you you know i haven't seen the film yet but a cast like that is just so uh you know enriching and and really i'm really really good to see it you know
2: yeah yeah um it is it is unique um that that, that's what i say on it i don't I, i almost don't want to talk about it too much um so i will put my my highlights are in the first half of the film really uh where cassius played by lakeith stanfield gets a job at a call center um and this is something that I did. Uh, I worked in a call centre selling insurance for three years. Three years, Jake. Yeah, Jesus. I know. Man. look at you now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> look at me now in this dark, cold basement <laughs> talking about phone. Not films. a phone in sight. Yeah, yeah. Um, but th- there are ways of treating this kind of work. Um, and I, like my favourite representation of it is office space. I thought David Brent's office is actually quite needlessly cruel at times. Um, and just I found it almost too too hard to watch because of just living it um but this gets so much into the absurdity of the culture that is made in those selling spaces of call centers but there's this the way it captures the disease of success uh in that environment is amazing that it complete you completely get caught up in it like um cash just gets gets good at his job um and is very happy to exploit people on the other end of the line because you get that money, that gets you the points, and the points get you the prizes, and then you're going to get told you move up to become a power caller, and you go up to that level. <laughs> and that was so much the culture that there's all this backslapping all the time, and that the there's a bit where a manager tells you that they're not the manager they're just part of the team but they're getting paid more than you and we're not getting paid anymore um and i had all of that and it was just so awful um but managed to be it's like quirky but not in a annoying way um and it managed to be just slightly distant enough from reality for me to be able to enjoy it um without immediately going into panic attacks about it
4: Everyone wants to be a power-caller, and...
2: <laughs> oh, the name of it is so perfect. <laughs> I know.
4: It's, it's really... That's a film that's very jarring, I think. It's very... Mm. I feel very different after it than I do to The Old Man and the Gun, because in the first part, I was very involved with it, really rooting for it, and it's very funny, it's very provocative, and it tells you what you need to be angry about and why you should be angry, and I agreed. But there is also a switch.
2: Always oh, a left turn. There is.
4: But the thing is, I was told about this left turn. Well, I was told there was a left turn before the film. And I was a bit annoyed because I thought, I don't want to be told that. I want to be surprised. However much you're told there's a left turn, Stephen, I'm telling you there's a left turn, you're still not going like, to... Okay. You know, you'll still feel that left turn. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's where I think the film really comes into its own and then completely goes way off the table from anything that anyone has ever done about call centres. I've never worked oh. at a call centre, but I don't think it kind of ends up like no, that. No, no.
2: Does No? It? no? no. Um, not, not often happening, the events of the second half of the film. And the second half is where Army Hammer comes into it. Uh, and he is... Absolutely
4: like, amazing. Oh yeah. But also terrifying. Year, mm, mm, mm. It's really quite awful. I mean, I... I might have mentioned before, you know, Army Hammer, we we know him well from Call Me By Your Name. Mm. Uh, We don't know Army Hammer from Sorry To Bother You. We have never seen him like this before, I don't think. I haven't seen a lot of actors perform the way he has in this film. And it's really haunting. And it's the kind of performance that goes very, very far into ridicule. But I, I didn't, I don't know, I don't think you can mock him. I was just very... Worried that someone worried and impressed that someone could write this character and someone could play this character in this way because he's just like the very very edge of humanity.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a super heightened character, but it doesn't feel like a caricature. It's
3: like worryingly real. Yeah. Um, I he seems yeah. he seems to be. I, I think what what's impressing me about Army Hammer. I, I, Everything that I've seen him in, I've not loved. But I think what's impressing me is he's taking this—he's—he's he's taking this kind of um, old school approach where he doesn't mind taking a step back and playing characters and being a character actor when it suits him and when it suits the role and i think that's a really kind of mature thing to do for an actor that has the look and the talent to be a leading man in every single film that he's in um and i think this in particular from the sounds thing sounds like he's working outside of his comfort zone again and i really admire that and it's also
4: Uh, interesting because the characters that he's playing are all in supporting roles as well and yet i found that in the films I've seen him he's always worth talking about he really brings something else to the central performance that just gives it a completely different flavour
2: mm. um, and another another great uh, score by The Coop which is um, Boots' band so a fantastic double bill for soundtrack fans out there uh, another getting stuff done soundtrack actually uh, you're getting
4: very different stuff done with the yeah. soundtrack but, but you'll get it done
2: yeah um, and actually if you want to hear from Boots or read from Boots uh, I don't know how to put it um, he spoke to to Kaleem Aftab, who was our guest on the Black Klansman episode of the podcast. Um, And that interview is available to read on the Curzon blog. Uh, So you can go and check that one out too. What a week. Uh, If you don't fancy going to the cinema, there is always the option of checking out Curzon Home Cinema on on there this week. We've got Disobedience. Uh, We focused on it last week in our episode about that film and Roma. Uh, And also Kelly, our regular contributor to the podcast, has written about Roma and that's available on the blog as well. If you've got any thoughts on The Old Man and the Gun or Sorry to Bother You, then do let us know by emailing podcast at curzon.com for next week's show, or you can tweet us at curzoncinemas as well. And if this is your first time listening to the show, please subscribe. You can do that on iTunes, Acast, you can do it on Spotify now, and wherever you listen, can you leave us a review or a comment? That would be wonderful. Uh, Next week, we'll be excavating the foundations of the house that Jack built and asking whether Lars von Trier's latest is shock or schlock. Both. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to do a final plug if you, uh, if you want some more The Old Man and the Gun content uh, I've written an article over on Little White Lies all about the font of the film which is Hobo um, that is probably the most on brand thing I'll ever <laughs> write um, but you, that's live now if you want to check that out if you want to keep up with the team in the room you can follow Stephen on Letterboxd keep up with up what you're watching as well yeah
3: and you can also find me this weekend at Curzon Bloomsbury uh, where I'll be screening two films as part yes. of the film tell us, season tell us a bit more about this season yeah it's it's uh, it's called A Cinema of Forking Paths and it's a film season about uh, the uh, well films inspired by the writer Argentinian writer uh, Jorge Luis Borges um, who wrote a lot about labyrinths and dreams and um we had our first screening yesterday, and we've got two more at Curzon and Bloomsbury, uh, Saturday the 8th and Sunday the 9th in the morning. So if anyone can make it, do pop down and say yeah. that. And listeners
2: might know that uh, Nicholas Rowe sadly passed away. Um, yeah. And there's going to be a future screening of performance there will as be, well. Yeah,
3: that'll be at the Horse Hospital. Um, yeah, and it's really sad to hear it. And, you know, if you want to come along and celebrate, kind of one of cinema's great provocateurs, uh, it'd be good to see you. Yeah. Uh, and Ella, people can keep up with you at...
4: I am on Twitter at EFE Kemp. And for the next week, I'll be tweeting about the Lars von Trier film and Susan Sontag. Lovely.
2: Mm. (laughs) And keep up with me, Jake H. Cunningham. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.